welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summary. A doctor in your pocket, is it possible? Absolutely. Uh, a company called Ada Health have done just that. Well, they've not done just that. Obviously, it's not an actual doctor in your pocket, but it is an app on your phone, which is in your pocket, that acts pretty much like a doctor. Um, you can download the Ada Health app. Anyone can do this uh, right now for free, and you will be able to use that for your own health assessments. You can input through essentially a chatbot. You can input what's going on, and you can get back what might be happening uh, in terms of potential diagnoses. This is used in healthcare across the world. It's used by clinicians, it's used by patients, by people. It's a class two regulated medical device, uh, so it can be used to inform diagnoses. And this is a heck of a company. Um, Daniel and his co-founders, Martin and Claire, have been building this company since, I believe, so 2011-ish. Um, so it's been around a long time, and time's something that we talked about, um, because when you're building a company that uses AI, that needs a huge amount of tech, you need capital, and you raise that from investors. Investors often need their money back quite quickly, but he has got what they call patient investors that allowed them to be around for this amount of time, to really bed the technology in, to really work it with healthcare systems globally, and to make sure that it was delivering a lot of value. And as a company, while they've seen companies around them come and go that have tried to do similar things, but Ada remains and they're approaching profitability pretty soon, Daniel was saying, which is incredibly exciting, not only for them, but I think for the digital health space um, to have a company that size, they employ 300 people uh, that's approaching a profit profitability uh, and making other digital health companies look good in the process and make that look possible, which I think is awesome. Daniel's a great guy, gives some really thoughtful answers to all the questions that are being asked. And you'll be pleased to know that we do talk about large language models uh, towards the end again on this podcast. Um, the thing is, Ada has been around for, well, it was kind of, it was, it was kind of before its time. Let's put it that way. It was in the early throes of me even being involved in digital health 2012. I mean, that's when I was sort of getting into digital health and health tech. Ada already existed by that point. And so I've only really known the digital health world with Ada Health in it. But what they were doing back then, well, there weren't many even talking about AI, talking about large language models, of course not. But now those words are a lot more common. The world looks very different now. Um, and lots of other large language models obviously popping up around them. But Ada's been doing this for a very, very, very long time. And Daniel talks about that and how the world has changed and how everyone sort of caught up with them almost, but how obviously they've got one eye in the future too. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy this one. I really enjoyed it. So uh, yeah, enjoy. Daniel, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you very much, James. Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Looking forward to having you on, Daniel. It's been a long time since I wrote about Ada Health in Forbes when you uh, uh, translated into Swahili and scaled uh, even more globally than you already were. That was many years ago. But in doing so, obviously research quite a lot about your company, know a lot about you, know a lot about what you guys are up to. And yeah, I've been following you guys, I mean, before then and also 
since then as well and you guys obviously continue to go from strength to strength so um delighted to have you on but um obviously the way that we start these podcasts is to get your story now i'm also super interested in this you've got a very colorful background with lots of different things in it and obviously founding ada health kind of almost before it's time or it seems like you guys talking about things that are far more commonplace now than they were then and the vision back then being uh, quite uh, revolutionary. So, yeah, Daniel, I guess for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us a bit about your story? Sure. So so I'm, you know, as you can probably tell by my accent, I'm originally from Germany, studied to become a lawyer because I didn't know, you know, what else to do with my life. Uh, <laughs> but fortunately, this is one of the decisions he can still correct later in life. So uh, <laughs> I first trained first trained in Germany and then uh, had a strong urge to uh, get out of Germany uh, and uh, study somewhere else. So I uh, got a scholarship, uh, it's called Fulbright Scholarship, to study in the United States. That was, uh, this will tell you how old I am, but that was in the mid-90s. Um, and after sort of suffering through uh, not having any access to any computers or even you had to... In Germany, you had to sort of file a written application like a week in advance to use something called microfish. I don't know, it's like some weird thing. Uh, and then I, I arrived in the U.S. to get a Master of Law degree and, and there were computers everywhere and you, you <laughs> didn't have to write an application or anything. Uh, and that's when I discovered, basically discovered the Internet. Uh, my biggest concern, being a big football fan, my team is Bayern Munich, by the way, nice. uh, you know, moving to the US and I'd never been there was how can I sort of keep up? How can I follow things? And then I, I realized basically you, you could just sit down at any computer there in, in the university and, uh, and basically read the news, read the footy news, uh, from, from back in Europe. And, and that was quite exciting. So, uh, <laughs> probably, you know, don't tell anyone, but I might have spent more time doing that than you know reading the legal books uh, at the I don't time, know I can relate I spend most I, uh, of my day on BBC Sport so yes following either the cricket okay. the tennis the football so I can definitely relate yeah yeah so you know being German I've I've once been taken to a cricket game uh something called the Ashes or something and I, I got yes. really confused because yes I, I didn't understand that it wasn't I was like, okay, who's winning? And, you know, how much longer does this go? And someone said, like, it's three more days. And I said, are you kidding me? So anyway, so so I need something simple that ends after roughly 90 minutes. So so, so I spent some time in the U.S. And, uh, you know, being exposed to the Internet kind of changed my perspective. I Before that, I was kind of, uh, you know, working towards working in, in a major international law firm, which I then briefly did, actually. But... I knew I wanted to do something with uh, with the internet. So I, instead of joining one of these big international law firms, uh, I, I decided to to leave and uh, join an internet company, which was called Lycos. That was one of the oh, yeah. Lycos Europe. That was one of the earlier search engines. We yeah, were yeah. always competing with Yahoo, uh, just like sort of trying to catch up. With Yahoo, um, we did an IPO. We acquired like 50 companies all around Europe. Did this to to sort of be eye to eye with Yahoo in Europe. Uh, but then Google kind of came out of nowhere and crushed everyone, of course. Uh, and uh, but we were trying to basically become what Google became later, and it was a very interesting learning experience for me. I initially ran the legal department, and then. Uh, 
uh, and then basically became sort of the chief of staff to the CEO, which gave me a lot of insight into different areas of running a business, which I had no idea about because I was just, you know, all I knew was law. So um, that was great because it uh, basically allowed me, I ran through various roles in the company, worked in product management, business development, uh, worked on the post-merger integration of all these companies we had acquired. Um, but then I wanted to learn more about business uh, and uh, decided to do to do an MBA, uh, which was an executive MBA program at the University of Chicago. Uh, again, my main interest was to be in Barcelona. At the time, they had a campus in Barcelona and they were flying in the professors from uh, from Chicago. So it was Barcelona, Chicago, Singapore at the time. And, wow. and I, I think eventually they realized that people like me were spending way too much time on the beach. So... Uh, so they moved the campus to London, but that was fortunately <laughs> after my time there. Uh, so I learned a bit more about business and then wanted to you know, see some other industries. So I spent a couple of years in consulting at uh, the Boston Consulting Group, which was uh, a good learning experience. Uh, but I, I knew I didn't want to do this for, for my entire life. So uh, I then you know, uh, started my own little startup, uh, sold that, and then worked for several years in, in e-commerce at uh, a ticketing company called uh, Viagogo or Viagogo, where I helped to build up the European business. Um, and then, you know, between these jobs, I always had the travel bug. So I, I went, did like a trip around the world, came back, didn't really know what to do. And then I got approached by some uh, friends and former colleagues from my time at Lycos. And they said, we know this super smart scientist and we actually invested in his business uh, he's basically trying to reduce uh, and ideally eradicate misdiagnosis. Uh, and so I come from a doctor's family. Everyone was a doctor. I was the first mm. black sheep uh, that actually went into law. My father was an ophthalmologist. Mm. Uh, so even as a kid, I often had to help him during uh, the weekend or something, sort of go with him to the, to the practice and so hold the eyes open and and all this kind of stuff. So I was always exposed to healthcare, but I, I didn't have a particular urge to do it um, because I knew some of the uh, challenges doctors have to deal with, um, not only in in Germany, but also in the National Health Service, uh, as well as in, in the US where I experienced it a little bit. Um, and and so I, I wasn't particularly interested initially, but then I had some conversations with uh, Martin, who's uh, a very, you know, was as smart as advertised, my co-founder. He's a grandson of a Nobel Prize winning physicist called Heisenberg. Um, and somehow, I, I don't know how this works, but the the sort of the genius must have passed uh, down uh, to him. He's a super smart guy. And it was just so fascinating. I didn't really understand what he was talking about, but I was like, okay, let's give this a try. Uh, and, and, you know, also met my, our third co-founder, Claire, uh, Claire Noverell, who's, um, who used to work, uh, in the NHS, uh, as a pediatrician and a geneticist. And she was trying to, uh, get into medical entrepreneurship. When I first met her, she was thinking about sort of building a Y combinator for health in Europe. She started an initiative in the UK called Doctorpreneurs. She was mm. the sole founder of that and then later brought on some more, uh, good friends who are now running it. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I convinced her to join the company, also convinced her to, to get married to me. So we're a, a husband and <laughs> wife co-founder team, oh, beautiful. uh, and, and our third co-founder, our third co-founder, Martin, he's now, 
he's now a professor for medical AI in Germany. So, uh, so I, I got really interested in that. Um, we had a lot of challenges, as you said when you when you introduced me. Um, we were almost a little too early uh, for yeah. for what we were trying to do. So. Uh, if you imagine 2011, 2012, we we were building a technology that was uh, initially um, only geared towards helping doctors make a better diagnosis. And we tested it with GPs in, in Germany and with uh, some GP professors from the Royal College of General Practitioners uh, in the UK. So we, we were always sort of looking at more than one country. Um, and, uh, they were, they were great. Uh, Greg Rubin, uh, Willie Hamilton, both, uh, excellent professors and they, they developed some, uh, early risk assessment tools for, uh, for cancer, um, which we applied. Uh, and we tested this with, uh, GPs and some of them were incredibly enthusiastic about it. And they said, this, this is going to change everything. This is amazing. I can't believe how accurate it is. But uh, some others uh, were more like specifically in Germany, some others were more uh, concerned that they weren't getting paid more to use it was one thing. Uh, the second thing was um, we, we don't really have the time to enter the information because we already have to enter the information into our sort of very old fashioned and difficult to use system that we use for, for the billing uh, if we don't do that, then we don't get paid. So we, we can't enter the information twice. Uh, and then some others were concerned, and that's a typical thing in Germany also, about um, uh, whether uh, having a system like this could lead to uh, being benchmarked by the payers in Germany. So so they were like, okay, well, if we once we have something like this in our practice, uh, then we're going to be benchmarked against other doctors, and the billing is going to be scrutinized and all that. Out. So, so there were a lot of a lot of sort of practical obstacles. But at the same time, we knew that our software was actually uh, very, very accurate, uh, even in the early stages. Uh, the way we had built it, uh, and this is where some of the genius of my co-founder Martin came in. Uh, who had a lot of experience with these uh, kinds of systems. The way we built it was basically that we uh, developed our own domain-specific programming language, which was easy to learn for medical doctors. And then we we uh, employed medical doctors who we kind of whom we kind of retrained as medical programmers. Uh, they they spent a, a couple of months learning this programming language, and then we kind of codified state-of-the-art medical textbook knowledge in a way that the system can, could understand. And behind that, we developed some probabilistic uh, algorithms, uh, among other technologies based on, on Bayesian uh, algorithms. So, you know, we knew it was quite accurate, but at the same time, we had all these challenges uh, with adoption uh, when it came to the doctors. Uh, and my background was in consumer internet. Uh, and I was always convinced that the patients really needed this and wanted this because uh, you know, when you look at uh, the percentage of searches in Google that are health related, that's actually the second largest category of searches in Google behind uh, behind one that's also related to the body, but uh, not necessarily health. So, so we knew about five to seven percent of all Google searches were health related. One out of five of those was directly a symptom, um, and uh, we knew we had built something that was super accurate. So the challenge then was 
you know, how can we take what we had built for doctors and which, which actually, you know, was met with quite a bit of enthusiasm by some of the most qualified doctors and, and sort of make it easier to use for patients and make it uh, available to as many people uh, as possible. Um, and that's when we worked for quite some time on uh, something that nowadays is called a chatbot. Basically, the idea was how can we mimic uh, what the best doctors do? Uh, the, the previous software we had uh, was geared towards the doctor. So there was uh, not so much of a need for guidance, whereas the patients, you know, we had to, we translated all our medical content to patient, what we call patient friendly language. A doctor would say abdominal pain, a patient would say tummy ache. Uh, and, and the bigger our, uh, our coverage of diseases and symptoms and ICD-10 codes grew, the more translation had to be done. So I think now we have 12 languages or something, but in reality, it's really 24 because we always have the doctor version and the patient version. So, so we did this. We finally launched our, our patient-facing app, uh, wanted to see how it goes. But at the same time, we were ahead of regulation, I guess. So we were like, okay, well, let's see how, how people react, but let's launch it in New Zealand first. So if something goes wrong, at least I don't go straight to jail, <laughs> uh, which we did. We, we started we started our app I think maybe in 2016 or so and that was about five years after the company had been founded so you can imagine it had taken a long time much longer than I was used to from e-commerce we launched our app in in New Zealand within a few days it was the number one app in the medical category of the uh, iOS app store back then and then it was it was really quite encouraging because after all these years of doctors being hesitant to use it, we literally had uh, people from Australia who were traveling to New Zealand. They were like, why can't I download this yeah. in my app store? Wow. So, so there was, we, we could see the pull and we could see the positive reaction. And then, um, you know, you start getting uh, user feedback uh, via email, but also in the app store. And that, that was so encouraging because mm-hmm. uh, one, actually the very, very first feedback we ever got was uh, that someone wrote to us and said, I downloaded your app. I, I will never delete it again uh, because it, I had these weird symptoms uh, and your app told me I'm pregnant. So, so I <laughs> took a pregnancy test and, and, and actually, you know, I, I am pregnant. Wow. So, so that was, you know, normal, normally we, we were trying to get to this sort of pre-diagnosis all the time, which is usually a, a disease, but in this case it wasn't a disease. Mm. So it was, was actually a really positive thing. But then uh, we launched the app in uh, in all the other app stores, and then a few months later, also in the in the Google Play Store. And since then, it's now been downloaded uh, over 13 million times. We have over 30 million cases in the system. Uh, it did become the number one app in the medical category in 140 countries, um, and it uh, it's uh, it's now the app in the medical category of the App Store and the Google Play Store with the most five-star reviews ever, more than 350,000, I think, uh, ahead of, you know, WebMD, Mayo Clinic, whatever, you name it. Even though we stopped actually uh, spending marketing money after after the first year or so. So so we're seeing, obviously, uh, it is a really uh, important use case. Uh, now, every two or three seconds, someone somewhere in the world is entering a new case um, in ADA. Uh, and as I described, it works very much like uh, as if you had a conversation, if, as if you had 24-7 access to your trusted GP. 
so you start with your presenting complaint, uh, and uh, as if you could, as if, as if I could send you a WhatsApp message whenever I want, and I'm like, hey James, you're a doctor, I'm feeling this weird headache, and then I'll start getting the responses, and basically what the AI does, it tries to narrow it down and rule out, like a good doctor would, tries to rule out more serious, threatening, mm. uh, urgent uh, conditions, and and at the end of uh, probably like a four or five minute uh, dialogue, which is dynamic, not static. So the next question is always computed based on the piece of information you've given so far. At the end of that, it gives you two main things. One is um, an idea of what condition or conditions might be causing your problems. Uh, and the second is some advice on what to do next, basically triaging, helping to triage the patient. You know, we, we launched this, uh, it was very successful, but we didn't, the, the app is still free. Uh, we're making mm. this available for free. Um, and uh, so, of course, eventually uh, running a company like this costs some money. Uh, we have, we're, we're about 300 people now. Um, so we're like, okay, well, uh, we probably need some more investment. Uh, we fortunately had very, very uh, patient backers, initially investors. Um, but then we also got some financial investors on board. And of course, they are like, okay, well, how are you? turning this into a business, <laughs> which is actually the thing. That's the thing I was so meant to do from day one. Uh, so we, uh, what was interesting was once the app was out there, and even though it was just patient-facing, we were getting a lot of inbound interest from all kinds of stakeholders I hadn't even thought about as being potential business partners down the road. Uh, individual doctors, hospitals, large health systems, health insurers, pharma companies, even biotech companies, you know, even even like things totally out of left field, like the automobile club of Switzerland or something. I was like, what do they want? You know, but if you if you think about it, basically what we had built uh, was a little bit like obviously not a full doctor in your pocket, but mm. something that would prepare either prepare the doctor visit or we do not have access to a doctor at least give you something that's comparable to being able to call your doctor and getting that first assessment over the phone uh, based on patient-reported findings and symptoms. And if you look at the shortage of doctors globally that already exists, and even in countries like the UK you know, or Germany or the US, where in general we have pretty good access uh, to doctors, but there are healthcare deserts, um, there are long wait times uh, and having something like this um, was of interest. Uh, and so we kind of gradually stumbled into developing it into a business. Um, and, and part of that was uh, a lot of trial and error, uh, F around and find out. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we learned, we, we learned along the way, uh, and, but the, the, the mission was always unchanged, which was to um, try and help more people get better access uh, to, to actionable health information and thereby improve access to healthcare. And that hasn't changed. Uh, initially, we were trying to do it through the doctors. Now we're doing it more through the patients. But by working with some of the you know, leading health systems in the world nowadays, uh, we, we sort of empowering both the patient and the doctor. And uh, the one thing I can say 
after having been doing this for, for 12 years is compared to anything I did before when I was a lawyer, a consultant, a ticket scalper, uh, a ticket tout, um, it's, you know, all these things were interesting and intellectually uh, challenging, uh, you know, uh, simulating and, and I learned a lot. Uh, but the most rewarding thing about what we're doing here is really the, the feedback from from patients. Uh, and, and sort of this is worth getting up for. Uh, just just last night, uh, I, you know, we got we got a message from uh, from a patient who, who wrote uh, who wrote to us and said, you saved my daughter's life. I can read it to you. Thank you. She, in fact, had had appendicitis and the appendix ruptured. The obsess was pressing on her kidney. Both suggestions you made were correct. Wow. And we get this all the time, yeah, like yeah. where people say, you know, yeah. you, you saved my daughter's life, you saved my father's life. And we have a lot of doctors who, who've been working with us for, for many years now, uh, who are obviously originally trained to, uh, to work directly with patients. Mm. Uh, but what I hear from some of our doctors, and I believe one of my colleagues actually might have been on your show uh, two or three years ago, oh, well, yeah. Dr. Shop's uh, upper day, yeah, he was. who's, you know, fantastic, fantastic guy, awesome guy, super funny, <laughs> uh, super competent. And, and, you know, we have some of these doctors who obviously they, they went into the profession because they love helping people directly, mm. but they see that with what we've built here, uh, we, we really um, have something that has the potential to help uh, people at scale, mm. help so many more people at the same time. If you think about, countries where you know the next doctor is like eight hours away mm. uh you know having something like this for free uh is a great first step it obviously doesn't provide you with with the, the cure yet but finding out what you have with fairly high accuracy has to be the first step mm. so yeah uh, and and i as i said i i wasn't initially very keen on going into healthcare because i knew yeah. how hard my father worked how he's yeah. how many Days he he spent in complete darkness, which is, I guess, the fate of an of ophthalmologist. You basically, uh, and I was like, okay, I'm not sure I want to do this, but uh, but I, I've I've not regretted it uh, for one second. Mm. It's interesting when you talk about that purpose part when you when you when you mention that bit about what's sort of nourishing you is that feedback, and it's funny because I used to I used to hear things like that from people that have founded health tech companies and and I'd always I'd never really I to be tr totally truthful I'd never really believe them 100%. I I'd, I'd always be like yeah but you're like the leader of your company you've got all these people that work for you you've probably got a great life like I know you've got to come on here and say that the nourishing thing is the feedback but is it really and I'd always kind of question it. But I guess recently I have started to feel that when you are running a business, the numbers are the numbers. And if they're sometimes good, they're sometimes bad, that you're sometimes raising money because they're good or bad or terrible or amazing. or But the numbers are the numbers and they do come and go. But you can be jaded. You can be tired. You can be uh, all of those things. That, and you can feel bad whether the numbers are good or whether their numbers aren't. And I've, and I've noticed even with myself running my business now that 
I'm starting to really believe what you just said, which is actually the fulfillment is coming from something else. The success in inverted commas of the business as it pertains to numbers, yes, gets you a certain way to feeling secure or feeling safe or feeling that, okay, I can pay myself a wage now or or whatever it is that covers my expenses. And these are good milestones. But I think you're absolutely right. And I'm really starting to learn this in reality now. And goodness how many times I've probably said it on this podcast. And I'm sure I can get lambasted for saying it previously and perhaps not really truly believing it myself. But actually, I'm starting to genuinely feel like it is when clients say we're doing a good thing, when the clients have done a great thing for patients and people like yourself are coming saying like, hey, here's all the impact that we've made. Do you know what someone said to me the other day? Like They said, oh, I listened to your podcast and... I actually got in touch with the person and they introduced me to someone. And now me and that person have started a startup and we've raised some money and now we're doing a thing. And I, and that is so nourishing for me doing more episodes of the podcast, far more than like if we raised sponsorship and got a couple of grand a month from it, which I'll probably just build a prison for myself in doing but like in order to deliver it or whatever. But I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to, I'm starting to genuinely feel that you're absolutely right in that statement. And I guess I don't know. My first, that aside, the first thing I wanted to actually ask you is you talked about really early in your career, you made a decision and that was, you could have gone into law and you chose to join an internet startup at the time where the internet was becoming a thing. That feels like an incredibly, I mean, you breeze past that decision very quickly in your story because there's quite a lot in your story, but that was quite a a big inflection point of taking risk. And now I've been in a lot of conversations recently with the junior doctors now starting on the wards tomorrow, I believe, from medical school. A lot of people questioning, should I even start as a junior doctor or should I do this thing that I'm super interested in, which is computer science or something, or should I change tack completely? You've done that at a time where the internet was becoming a thing and now we're looking in healthcare AI is becoming a real thing. Where we are in the hype curve, we're approaching that plateau of things actually making impact. And there's all these different things within technology that can make a difference now. So can you talk to me about that decision? And I suppose in some way, I'm hoping this is related to kind of what's going on now with with people in the healthcare workforce having to make decisions about their careers too that might be risky as you've done at that point. Yeah, for me, the decision was a relatively easy one. And I think it's easier to make when you're young, uh, you know, which I'm not anymore, but I was back then. Uh, it was uh, so the salary, I think, that I got offered from the Internet company was probably just about half of what I would have made at the at the law firm. But I had the benefit of having spent half a year in one of these law firms. Uh, and, you know, while the people are smart, uh, it was it was not the kind of experience that I was passionate. I wasn't, I just wasn't passionate about it. And I, I, I didn't know how exactly at the time this was 98, 99. Um, I, but I knew the internet was just going to change everything. I mean, uh, you know, if, if I had been smarter, of course I would have just made life much easier for myself and just bought 10,000 domain names and, uh, sold them for a lot more, lot more money <laughs> later. But I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't that smart. Uh, so I, so I, you know, I was still a little bit risk averse. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to work in the legal department. I'm going to help, uh, build up the legal department, uh, together with a colleague who's still a good, very good friend of mine. We, we, we were two lawyers in the beginning, then we were eight or something. Uh, and it was, you know, it was a great experience. I knew I was going to 
have a little bit more leeway to make mistakes also. Uh, because if you work in a big law firm, you're basically, it's similar to consulting. The first few years, you're, you, you're expected to basically work till mi midnight every day. And it's, you know, it's good for some people. I, I, I did work actually longer hours in the startup in the beginning, but it was so exciting because everything was new. Uh, you know, and we, the, the, the legal challenges were new even, uh, and, And I got given a, a lot of responsibility by my then uh, CEO, who's also still a good friend of mine, who's now the chairman of the supervisory board of, of Bertelsmann, uh, who are now actually also an investor in, in our startup. Uh, so, you know, some of the, some of, you know, it's, it's good to have a learning experience, but I, I wasn't, it wasn't a hard decision for me. I think if you're a doctor, it might be a little bit different because you have the uncertainty you sort of get into is maybe worse. For me, I, I could have always gone back to a law firm. I could have done something else. Uh, but I think if, you, if you're a doctor and you go into tech, maybe at some point you have to make a decision whether you keep your medical license or not. And then, so I think it's, it's maybe a harder decision uh, to make for a doctor. And, you know, I'm a little bit torn there because we employ, we still employ, I think about 60 doctors full time uh, at ADA. And they are really the, the heart and soul of, of what we do because they constantly refine uh, the, the medical knowledge base. They improve the, the condition coverage. Uh, they work on medical safety, medical accuracy, which is really the most important thing for us. And it, it's, it's the core of what we do. But, um, of course, I'm super happy they, they work with us. And at the same time, I know, uh, if, if all the doctors go into tech, that's also not a good thing <laughs> because we still need the doctors Absolutely. in the clinics to, Absolutely. to, to, to do the kind of frontline work. Um, and I have such great respect for, for doctors and healthcare professionals in general. I mean, my mother, Uh, she was a nurse. She she came from Korea. So I'm half Korean, half German. I grew up in Germany. Uh, she came from Korea as a nurse to Germany in the late 60s, mid mid late 60s, uh, when there was already a, a shortage of uh, of healthcare workers in Germany. So basically, there was some kind of partnership between the countries where several planes full of nurses were uh, imported to germany and you wow. know doctor nurses uh, how, as it happens but <laughs> so i i really grew up with healthcare uh, people around me and and you know when you have elderly grandparents who unfortunately then pass away at some point you you do spend some time yes. going to visit them in the hospital and everything so when you when you see it the frontline work healthcare workers do even in in england or in germany uh the I can't express how much respect I have for them. And then when you think about people doing this job in, in much harsher conditions in sub-Saharan Africa or in certain parts of India, I mean, that, that's just, uh, mm. you know, that's just, uh, so admirable. So, yeah. um, I, I can encourage doctors to go into tech, but hopefully not all of them. Yeah, no, here, here to that. Final thing I want to talk to you about before I move on to Ada, because there's loads I want to talk to you about Ada. Um, they, they say that you can gain a heck of a lot of confidence to found a company when you've got a frontline seat or front row seat, sorry, to the action, being close to a founder, being close to a CEO to really see how a company works and how a company is run by a, a leader very practically. 
Would you agree with that? What, given that you did the chief of staff role, because you then said after running legal, you did that chief of staff role, which gave you that sort of front row seat to the CEO and everything the CEO was doing. Um, because going into consulting and then, you know, Viva Gogo and, you know, growing that business and that kind of thing, there's then there's then sort of a gap between then starting the company. I'm interested in sort of what gave you the confidence to think, hey, I can be a founder here. Was it that chief of staff role? Because I've heard that that can be a really big deal <laughs> in uh, in that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a very good way to um, to basically get a bird get a bird's eye view of all the things that are going on. Um, I think if you are in a specialist role within a company, um, obviously you, you might be the best at at one thing you do or, or your particular area of competence, and and you know that, that's great because we need specialists who are you know, just really, really good. Whereas uh, if you are in this chief of staff role, you you basically, you shadow uh, the guy who has to run the entire company. And uh, by doing so, you, you learn about all the different challenges, whether that be fundraising, managing a board, which, you know, I had to assist with in that time where we had um, board members from the US, we had uh, board members from 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 Germany and from Spain and uh, sort of you get an idea of all the challenges uh, a guy who basically ultimately is ultimately is responsible for uh, running the company um, or uh, not a guy or or a woman uh, that's running the company you get an idea of all the challenges I must say it's it's at the same time it's incredibly rewarding specifically when you do what we do uh, and even if I had a really crappy day. We have a, a user feedback channel in in Slack, where sort of the the App Store reviews of the day get pushed in there. And then I look at that and I'm like, yeah, you know, uh, I'll wake up tomorrow and keep doing it. So so that this is incredibly uh, motivating, uh, and um, that really changed it for me. When we were just dealing with the doctors, and they were like not really adopting it. I was like, why are we even doing this? I'm not seeing the impact. But for me, it's all about impact at scale. And and that's the best way to get that feedback loop um, and, and feel like you're doing something that has a purpose, as you said. Love it. We don't have a user feedback channel, but we do have something called the win wall, which is a Slack channel where anyone can post their wins. And some of those are obviously client testimonials and things like that. But yes, we collect our wins and it's a fantastic channel to look at when you've received three or four of those messages that you just mentioned in a row. Um, yeah, one, yeah. Thing, one thing that we have in Slack is, is something called ADA shoutouts channel and, and that we introduced relatively recently. But I think it's really great because when we first started, we were like 40, 50 people. I knew everyone personally. I knew everyone's story. I, you know, you basically, we had drinks sometimes way too many, but we had drinks almost <laughs> every day. We were on the same office. Nice. Uh, and now, of course, we're like distributed across the world. And I, I don't know everyone really personally anymore, but I do look into that channel because it's a great way to to make visible the good work of your colleagues. So, you know, someone says, hey, I just want to say, you know, James, you really helped me solve this problem. And, and, and you know, this is why you saw such a big asset uh, for the team. And, and I look at that and I, it's, it's, uh, that's another thing that, um, 
is useful and helpful to give some people also the recognition that they deserve. Beautiful. Um, let's talk about Ada. And I want to take you back to the very first, uh, let's call it the day or the time of founding Ada, uh, with Martin, with Claire, and you not being from healthcare. Where did this idea come from? You mentioned, you mentioned Martin saying that they could elim eliminate misdiagnosis or, or at least work towards it. But how, how did you feel hearing this? And was this at the time, because you said it was around, what, 2010, 2011. Um, at that time, was this, did this feel kind of like really futuristic and out there? Was this really ambitious? Did it feel to you like, hey, this is doable based on what I know? Um, and let me explain the reason why I asked this. The reason why I asked this is because I think a lot of ideas, particularly in healthcare, exist within the realms of what's comfortable because I think they have to because often to get things adopted which you saw as a big challenge for something really ambitious is incredibly difficult and so in order to get adopted many 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 of the ideas exist as sort of incremental change it feels like to me Ada at the time of inception was this super ambitious like quite technological you're talking about Bayesian models and AI and at a time where we really weren't talking about that at scale. Did it feel quite futuristic to you at the time from a technology perspective? Was this really ambitious? And did you guys think, hey, we are literally going to change the world here? Uh, yes. So I was I was basically a little bit insane to get into this because uh, not only did I not, not have any idea about coding, I also had no idea about medicine. So I was basically <laughs> trying to run a company. I was trying to run a company and I was like the least knowledgeable person in the company. And I, I was so naive because my former <laughs> colleagues who, who approached me and said, Oh, we've met this genius guy. And, you know, he, and I, I said, well, if he's such a genius, why can't he do it by himself? And they were like, well, uh, the genius is more on the scientific, uh, side. Uh, it's not necessarily on running a business. Uh, and I was like, what I, what do I have to do with it? And they were like, well, you know, you just, you know, why don't you give it a try? So, so I, I, um, it was very strange to me because I knew, quite a bit about how to sort of run an internet business, like mm -hmm. generally, but mm -hmm. I was trying, I said to them, look, uh, I'm a commercial guy. I, you know, I want to make deals. I, I don't really want to sit in an office with a bunch of programmers uh, and, and I'd wait for them basically, because I'm, I don't know, I can tell them what I would like to see, but I can't explain to them how to do it. And my former colleagues, you know, uh, bless them, but they were like basically lying to me. They were like, oh, don't worry about it. The product's <laughs> already finished. You just, you just need to commercialize it. Oh, I was wow. like, oh, okay, well, then I'll give it a try. <laughs> and, and basically we had like a conceptual prototype at the time. Uh, it was more like a click dummy uh, mm. and because I was so naive. I didn't really understand anything. So uh, yeah, I did spend not just a few months, but a few years in the lab, so to speak. Mm. And um and, uh, but, you know, I had to sort of, I have to say, if I hadn't met Claire, uh, along the way, who was, who's always been very intrinsically motivated to, to help patients, obviously being a doctor and she saw the big opportunity to, to help many people. 
um, I was getting approached by uh, some of the largest tech companies to run Europe or, you know, run oh, the wow, German-speaking okay. countries or do other stuff in the first years. Uh, and I might have been tempted, but uh, Claire basically told me, you know, don't you dare. We have a mission to pursue here. Uh, and, you know, it's just, yeah, I just have to keep at it. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe things would have gone differently, but I've, I guess a lot of the thing with running a startup is just not giving up, uh, mm. to some extent, because there, there's always a reason to give up, uh, but we didn't. And, um, you have to kind of keep motivated by the small successes along the way. Like you see something internally, we knew how accurate our software was the original, uh, the original idea was more um, basically we built what IBM Watson promised to build, but didn't re- whatever approach they were taking didn't really work very well. And we knew from our tests with the doctors that uh, they were amazed. I mean, they, they said, look, I mean, this is incredible. There's a rare disease that uh, later turned out to be the diagnosis and your software told told me this in, in, yeah. in three minutes, which on average, it takes seven years to diagnose. Yeah. So we, we initially worked with, uh, we initially worked on vertigo and dizziness with the leading uh, university hospital in Germany uh, for, for for this, uh, which, you know, as you probably know, it often gets confused and misdiagnosed uh, at the GP. You know, you have Morbus Minier, you have the BPPV and all this stuff. So, uh, you know, I'm becoming a bit of a doctor. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, and even the... <laughs> <laughs> Even though those were only like 25 or 26 um, conditions, we knew that they were very often getting misdiagnosed. And it took kind of, it was kind of an an odyssey, not as bad as with the rare diseases, but the patients often went through like a year or two of suffering till they finally got to these specialists. And then uh, the professor who was heading this department, I think like 150 specialists based in Munich, uh, he said to us, when a new young doctor comes to my department, that doctor needs about six months to get to the level of diagnostic accuracy your software is already providing. So foolishly, uh, we were very encouraged by that. And then we were like, well, then all we need to do is basically add all the diseases <laughs> that are known. Uh, and then, you know, we give it to everyone. And, uh, and I remember my, my co-founder saying to me, well, this will take 10 years. And I was like, oh, 10, I don't have 10 years, you know, let's try to do it in one year. But, you know, obviously he was, he was right. And we're still not, we're still not covering, um, all the rare diseases, but we're covering, uh, more than 35,000 ICD 10 codes. Uh, and I would say with, you know, 99 point something cases, a GP would encounter, we do cover and we cover almost all the rare diseases where there's a known treatment. We don't cover the entire long tail of rare diseases yet, uh, but it's been it's been constant work over the last 12 years to keep refining it. And uh, But I, I have to say, if I hadn't, if we hadn't done the switch to patients and if we hadn't gotten this positive feedback channel from the patients, I don't know how much longer I would have been able to, yeah. to go. But that really keeps me going. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. Um, one thing I want to talk about now is a concept that you've mentioned a couple of times, which is time. Because I think there's an interesting relationship between Ada Health and time. You were ahead of your time, which I said at the start and you agreed with. It seemed like you were certainly ahead of your time with 
AI for diagnosis, essentially. You were ahead of the regulators because of that, which I think is interesting as well. And, and there's been a lot that sort of caught up since. And the thing that kind of relates to time, which is venture funding. And you mentioned having patient investors, which you will have needed to have. And actually, there's this tension, I think, between healthcare companies receiving investment and funds being on a 10-year clock. Obviously, of course, some are evergreen. And as you mentioned, there are patient investors. Um, but often, as you've said, later down the line, you can acquire investors, you can acquire them anywhere along your journey that really sort of push the clock on you and, and really try and accelerate that time to exit, etc. So it seems like there's a lot going on with time, but you guys have been around a long time. You are an example of a company that has seen a lot. And I've had a couple on recently on this podcast, like like Emil from BIOS in, in the kind of neurotech space, again, been around ages. Mohammed from Patients Know Best, been around since 2008. Oh, yeah. It seems like, yeah, it's Mohammed that I talked about fatherhood and entrepreneurship with and that kind of stuff. So like it's, there are these companies that now have had to have been around a long time in healthcare for the regulators to catch up. They've needed patient investors in order to see that journey through. And it feels to me like this, this model that got really pushed since, well, a few years ago of like, we need to build SaaS stuff in healthcare. We need to invest big, exit within five years and that, you know, that's going to save healthcare and chatbots for this and da da da. Like it was all, it was all just like quite ag aggressive Silicon Valley style in investing in company building that didn't seem to work. And, and there are companies like yourselves in, like I mentioned in that group that given the time you can build something of value. So I don't know if you can talk to that concept for me about being around for a long time and what you've seen over that time with the regulators and with technology that's come and gone and with where your position has changed and your competition maybe has changed and, and yeah, who's around you. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, a shout out to, to Mohammed from Patients Know Best. <laughs> uh, you know, we have the greatest respect for him. He, he was friends with, uh, Claire, uh, in Cambridge. And oh, he, nice. Without him, without him, we wouldn't be where we are now because wow. he's the one who encouraged. He was talking with Claire about this idea of this Y Combinator type mm. accelerator for health, which didn't exist in 2011 or so. Uh, and he was the one who encouraged Claire to go to Berlin and speak about her ideas at a healthcare conference. That's where I met Claire. So, Aww. you know, uh, obviously I have, have, have seen Mohammed, haven't Aww, seen him in beautiful. a few years, but you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's amazing the work, uh, he and his team are doing and, uh, doing it in the UK. And, you know, I know, I know some of from back then, uh, his story and he's always been a great source of encouragement for Claire as well. So, uh, in terms of the uh, uh, the investors and and your question, um, it was a little bit by accident, of course. When you so what I knew when starting a company was trying to look for VC investment, uh, but in hindsight, I would have to say if we had gotten investment from certain types of VCs very early on, we would have probably been shut down yeah. after a year or two because yeah. we you know we weren't anywhere close to. So, so the approach I knew from my, my previous companies was basically the MVP, uh, lean startup method yeah. where you, you know, you build, you build a very, um, 
basic product. Uh, then you start generating revenue, you test, uh, you, you're free to make mistakes, you, you move fast and break things. It doesn't quite work like that in healthcare. And this is something I had to learn. I, obviously, I didn't know that all before. But uh, if you're building something like what we're building, you can't just say, uh, basically, if it's a heart attack and your app says, oh, yeah, you have some sort of shoulder issue and, uh, and the patient dies and you're like, oh, my bad, you know, you can't, you just can't do that. So, uh, so it took years, it took years for us to even, even roll it out. And we couldn't have done that if we hadn't had the support of basically private, uh, ultra high net worth individuals, uh, mostly from Germany who, who just believed in the purpose of what we were doing. We obviously, we kept them informed about the progress, but we didn't really have business progress to show in terms of revenues, numbers uh, in the beginning. And they were incredibly patient, incredibly encouraging. And we did at some point bring in a financial investor that turned out not to be the right fit for the company. And the original investors actually recognized that and saved the company by buying that investor out again. And I think it was by accident because certainly even in the first years I did talk to VCs and probably they were like, what are these guys on about? I mean, this, this seems too big of an idea and it seems too ambitious and uh, many have tried it. Look at IBM Watson didn't really become a commercial success. You know, how are these clowns going to do this? So, so we had um, a few family members from, from Germany, from, a basically very private individual. So I don't want to name them, but they, they, a lot of them are from the wider family that is behind the chemical company Henkel, uh, in Germany. And that, you know, they're not, they don't, it's not their last name. Uh, they like to be very private, but they, they've been fantastic over the first few years. And my fundraising actually, uh, in the first years often went like, um, do you have another relative I could meet? <laughs> uh, so, so at this point, I have like 20 of them on the cap table. Wow. And, uh, and, you know, fantastic people. Um, we also have some private individuals like um, another friend of Claire's from, uh, from Cambridge who uh, basically invented the AI behind Amazon Alexa. He sold his business to Amazon, William Tunstall Pedo. Uh, I would say one of the top AI experts in the world. And uh, we met, we ran into him at Founders Forum and, uh, and uh, Claire started chatting with him and said, uh, we were asking, what have you been up to? Uh, and he was like, oh, I just sold my business to Amazon. And, you know, now I'm really, you know, well off. And, you know, and what have you been doing? Uh, and Claire was trying <laughs> to explain to him. And he said, oh, this sounds like, this sounds a little bit like this. British company that's doing, trying to do something similar. Uh, they approached me recently. Uh, and then he looked at their tech uh, and approach and he looked at ours and then he invested in us uh, and has been a great friend and advisor ever since. He's actually now doing it again. He's working on some very, very exciting AI um, uh, startup. Uh, you know, he's a serial entrepreneur. So we have a few people like that. We have the chief business officer of Google in a private capacity, invested very early on together with his brother um, and so on. So it's it's a different timeline, I guess, if you're a private investor who supports something because ultimately, yes, they would like to see it become commercially successful and see a return, but they're not 
they don't have the same time pressure maybe that a VC has to uh, to show a return uh, very, very quickly. And I think, therefore, in healthcare, if you know you're working on something that might have the potential to change the world, but also might take a long time, uh, having this type of a supportive investor can be can be a blessing. Can you talk to me about Ada now? So we've talked about obviously the the journey up until this point and everything that's led up to it. In terms of what it is now, I imagine it's very different for low income countries versus high income countries, for example. And you alluded to that previously a little bit about how it might be used and the value that it's going to have. And how do you how do you actually describe what what it even is because of course with regulation and and this that and the other you've got to be careful with words like diagnosis and treatment and all these different things so is it decision support is it something more in high income versus low income countries like how do you describe what you're up to and what's the impact that you're having globally well i mean when i when i speak about it very casually then uh and and this is not meant in a legal sense of course but it's just to make it easy to understand it's like it's like you're you know you're a little bit like a personal doctor in your pocket, but obviously it's not a doctor. It cannot make a mm. diagnosis. Uh, and only doctors can make a diagnosis. Um, but the the app and the software is actually the same in lower and middle income countries as in uh, in high tech countries and uh, or in, uh, very very wealthy countries. And uh, for good reason. I mean, why why should someone in a lower and middle income country get a worse quality of ADA than someone in a, in a rich country. So, so, and everyone benefits basically because our team built uh, over the years, built proprietary tools to try and create like a virtual cycle of feedback loops. So we learn from the cases that come in specifically, of course, when uh, there's a confirmed doctor diagnosis that we get afterwards, as we get from some of our partnerships with health systems, uh, then we can improve the system and then the system becomes more accurate for the person in Tanzania. Um, the, the thing that's different is really more what happens further downstream. Um, for instance, in Tanzania, our partnership with the Botna Foundation, uh, which is a philanthropic uh, foundation from, from Switzerland, uh, fantastic partners. Um, this partnership is, is partly focused on empowering community health workers because they they the, they have a, a, a bigger doctor shortage than uh, than in the in the uh, in the Western world. So uh, they uh, the idea here is really to upskill community health workers so they become a little bit more like the the doctor. Um, and of course, the next step options are different. Like if we were to let's say replace NHS one 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 in the UK, which really is something that the NHS should consider. Uh, if that were to happen, then the next step options are obviously, you know, could be GP, could be the A&E, et cetera. So there are a lot more um, and and more competent options uh, down the line. Whereas in, in sub-Saharan Africa, the best option might be to locate the next community health worker, something like that. So, uh, so that's different. Now, we work in the U.S. with some of the leading health systems in the United States, whether that's you know, Kaiser Permanente is something that we mm. never uh, publicly announced, but it's a partnership that has been going on for years. Sutter Health, uh, obviously, they have very, a very Jefferson Health. Uh, we work with uh, Canadian 
state government, province government, uh, to offer a, a, a virtual primary care solution for, for their 15 million inhabitants. These kinds of things, then, you know, you have a telehealth option, you have, you can geolocate the next uh, GP, but we help. Uh, so in these cases, ADA is basically embedded in uh, the ecosystem of the partner, in their app, uh, on their website, uh, and the next step options are tailored and customized where you can uh, go straight into the appointment booking and the doctor at the time of booking the appointment already gets the outcome of ADA's pre-assessment. So even before the doctor exchanges the first word with the patient, uh, they can see at a glance, okay, this is basically the patient history. These are all the patient report symptoms and findings. Based on that, the system suggests that these might be the most likely differential diagnoses. It could even flag a rare disease if the fit is particularly strong wow. to the doctor. Uh, and it will also give some advice to the doctor on what tests, examinations, and investigations to consider next to get to the confirmed diagnosis. And now I'm going back to when we first tried working with the doctors. If you remember, I said one of their concerns was I don't have the time to enter this information in the system because I already have to do it for my billing system. Mm. I spend all my time looking at my screen and not actually talking mm. to the patient. So we, we kind of turned this around. Now we're using the patient in, in their own interest, of course, uh, to enter all the information before the appointment, mm. uh, thereby we avoid a potential loss of information or misunderstandings between the patient and the doctor. It's mm. all also being documented. So if you're the doctor, you look at this, uh, you don't start from a blank sheet of paper. You can, you can have a much more uh, targeted conversation with the patient already. And then the thing that doctors now like is because it's all structured data, it's all ICD-10 coded, wow. Maybe the doctor just needs to ask two or three exactly. uh, questions. And Powerful, then if they yeah. basically they confirm it, it's integrated with Epic, which is one of the big health record yeah. systems. Then it gets written. It gets written into the uh, health record. Uh, and we've basically just saved the doctor on average three to four minutes of documentation time. And that's where the doctors start to really like you because yes. they all hate doing the documentation, uh, which is very understandable. And, and so we've, so we've turned what was initially a weakness uh, into a strength, uh, making the process not only uh, hopefully improving the doctor's diagnosis, but also making the process more efficient and saving the system time. Mm. Now, if you look at Sutter Health, for instance, they have about 10 million appointments uh, per year. Uh, if, you, if you think about saving four minutes per appointment, and about how scarce and valuable doctor's time is, uh, then that's certainly a, a very important additional benefit uh, we can bring at this point. Yeah, awesome. It's certainly so much more holistic than, I guess, what might initially be suggested to someone when you think of ADA as almost like a decision tree. It's so far beyond what that even is and it's frankly incorrect to even consider it in those terms um, because of everything that's going on inside with the technology and, and everything you're interoperable with frankly when you're talking about inter interoperable with epic and all this sort of stuff it, it it goes really far into solving a genuine problem rather than solving a bit of a problem and this is the thing i think with so many apps on the app store um 
um, let's ignore the fact of how regulated they are yes or no but even focusing on like what problems they solve it's a lot of point and shoot it's a lot of parts of problems and actually i think as you we talked about time right and being a company that's been around a long time i think given the time to actually allow for all of those partnerships allow for all of those different things that you need to be interoperable with to go through all of a sudden it really starts to build like an end-to-end solution for people like it solves a genuine problem end to end which i think is fantastic the one thing i want to ask you about before i let you go is that the world looks very different now to when you first started ada and large language models are popping up in and around us as we speak um with ChatGPT and medpalm 2 and what microsoft and nuance are doing with OpenAI as well um with documentation and things like that where do you because it feels like they're almost arriving somewhere where you've got to through blood, sweat and tears and other people are just sort of arriving there. And it feels, it feels a bit more flimsy. I know I've got no real, it doesn't feel like they've got there through the, the, the work that you've done. It feels like we've just sort of arrived at some of these solutions that are popping up with, with the large language models. How do you think about your position with regard to them and I suppose the value locked into Ada because of how you've got here versus where these other ones are. If that makes does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, so we are uh, we're actually quite excited about these new technologies. Uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, some of my investors approached me and they said, "Is that a threat to us?" And and some of the other people are like. You know, this is amazing. I mean, you know, as you just described, the, the world is to some extent catching up to what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the way, the way technologically arrived at that point is quite different. And, and the reason why I'm quite excited about it is because I think I see a lot of adjacent capabilities that we can build more quickly to what we've built and how we can increase the usefulness of what we've built with these new, with these technologies. So for us, uh, large language models are far from a new thing. Our, our longtime CTO was a leading computer linguist. Uh, we have quite a strong uh, AI research team, math, PhD people. That's always been very much at the core of our business. That and the medical doctors, this, this combination. Some are, some, some are even both, uh, which is like brains <laughs> this size. Uh, so we, so we, so we've been experimenting with uh, large language models for, for years, actually. And, um, uh, of course, with sort of new chips and, and, uh, and, and raw computing power, uh, what we see is quite a bit of progress when you look at, I mean, it's, you mentioned a couple, Medpalm, you mentioned uh, you know, ChatGPT. There's also a, an Israeli company called AI21, Germany com- German company called Aleph Alpha. Uh, really great, great stuff. And... Um, I think the difference between that and what we do is really we've basically modeled curated knowledge, which makes it uh, it makes it auditable. Uh, it's not a black box. We're not guessing the next word. We can actually show uh, in the system why the system arrives at a certain uh, recommendation yes. it is making. It's it's all ICD ten coded. It's structured data which if you think of the potential uh, medical and commercial use cases uh, should make a big difference. I mean, I, I play around with 
Uh, I played around with ChatGPT, Bard. We all do it all the time. We have a, an entire team that's working on adjacent use cases. Amazing. But I think for us, it should make the technology we've built even more valuable as part of a wider ecosystem. So I can think of, uh, so one thing I can see is make, maybe making the uh, the chat uh, even more natural. So if you look at Ada today, for good reason, we decided to make it a very guided conversation. Uh, but some of these um Tools can help to allow the patient to express themselves uh, in, in a little bit more uh, color maybe at some stages. But then also, if you think about things we deliberately didn't do, because we're a class 2A certified medical device uh, in Europe, which is also quite unique uh, and took a long time. Uh, going back to your time comment, uh, also integrating with Epic took ages, etc. So all this stuff. You don't have all that stuff when you, you when you just use a technology that guesses the next word and isn't uh, certified, isn't tested. So I love this technology, and it always sounds very plausible. But it basically, you know, at the core of it, it just guesses the next word. So it just very often makes stuff up that sounds extremely plausible, uh, but is is actually not true at all. Like when I when I tried uh, when I looked at uh, you know, obviously you start with your own company. So I was like, who are Ada's co-founders? And then my co-founder was a random YouTuber from Indonesia. <laughs> and, and you know, I, wow. I, I worked at, but it sounded really convincing. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, 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 uh, and, and Claire, so I tried Bard yesterday and, and I asked about Claire and it said it doesn't know Claire. And then I said, who are the founders of Ada? And it listed her as one of them, but it said, it also said that she founded another company in the UK, which was actually not founded by her. That just just went into administration after doing a spec deal. So it's it, it, now if you think about that applied to a life or death medical this use is case, the thing. you know that this is the thing. I mean, you you go to a doctor, and unfortunately, that happens in real life. The you know the the problem is that the I don't know the exact wording of the saying, but uh, one of the problems in the world is uh, that so many idiots are full of confidence, whereas some really smart people uh, doubt themselves and don't come across as confident. So if if I had to use this uh, analogy, I would have to say that uh, some of these large language models sound extremely confident. Uh, but it's almost like you go to a doctor and that doctor has a white beard and, you know, a professor title and comes across as I know what I'm doing. And, you know, and, 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 and unfortunately, you know, that's not really always the case. I'm, I'm actually a victim of that. I, I did go when I was 15, 16, I, uh, you know, I had a medical procedure where I, uh, there was this old professor and he's, he looked like this authority figure and he said, well, we got to do this surgery. Uh, and uh, and I remember that he went away and his younger uh, sort of assistant doctor secretly came back into the room and said to my parents and me and said, do you really want to do this? Yeah, Are you sure? Wow. And, but the the we were like, well, the professor said we should. So, you know, we're doing it. And then I later when I was at university, I, I went into the medical library and started researching it myself. And I, I realized it said in the medical literature, well, this this particular operation has been not been done since the 1920s. It's no longer considered state of the art. I was like, what the hell? So, uh, so I think 
it's uh, it's really important in the medical field that um, it's possible to audit things and it doesn't come up with random stuff. That doesn't mean it's not an amazing technology and that we, we are not constantly looking at uh, benchmarking our solution against it. Uh, but I think a lot of the things you read in sort of popular news uh, sites and magazines aren't necessarily uh, partly overblown. I mean, we constantly compare the accuracy and there's nothing uh, remotely as accurate as ADA uh, out there. We, there. There's some studies that were done and published in the British Medical Journal where um, researchers put uh, 200 case vignettes through ADA and some of the um, other systems that were trying to do something similar at the time and then also seven practicing UK GPs. And ADA was the only one that was almost on par with these very well-trained UK GPs. And that was two, three years ago. I, I, I think we've gotten better since then. Uh, so, you know, we feel quite confident that the medical accuracy uh, and, and all the medical safety aspects are, are not going away and they're going to be extremely uh, important going forward as well. Uh, we've always, that's always been the key thing for us. Uh, we saw that when some, Companies in our space seem to get into financial trouble. Uh, the first people they laid off were the medical uh, safety people. And, and I can tell you, if we, you know, fortunately, we are anything but in financial trouble. We are actually very close to operating profitably uh, wow. and, and no longer fundraising because we are, uh, wow. you know, I think we're one of the few dig digital health companies that's actually uh, profitable at this point uh, at the end of the year. Um, and, uh, so we're doing, you know, we're doing great. Um, but if we ever were in financial trouble, uh, the last people we would let go would be yeah. the medical safety people. Yeah. Yeah. What a story. Um, Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I was going to ask you what you're excited about as a final question, but I think, uh, I think profitability is, uh, pretty much says it all. I mean, that, that is an incredibly exciting point to get to because in digital health, it's not easy. It's really, really, really not easy. And so many have tried and failed, right? Like you must be incredibly proud given the whole story. And we talked about time and to be approaching that, like, wow, like good for you. I mean, it's not, it's, it's less, it's less about pride. I think it's more about, um, you know, what, what motivates us is, is trying to make a positive impact at scale. And of course, if you're not financially healthy, then there's a risk that uh, you can no longer make that impact. And yeah. uh, so it's really about making the company self-sustainable without uh, being dependent on, uh, you know, if there's just hype or if investors are, you know, investors to some extent are like sheep. So if they go uh and say okay now you know now we're all investing into scooters now we're all investing into like uh, you know whatever you don't want to de be dependent on that you want to build a business that can stand on its own um and i can tell you that over the years when some of this hype was happening and some of these companies were announcing i mean we've raised significant funding over you know very close to 200 million in total so it's not like I haven't been busy doing that, but uh, I saw some other companies raising even larger amounts. I saw some people making promises they, they couldn't necessarily keep. And then, of course, as you can imagine, some some investors would come and say, you know, what are you even doing? Are you sitting on your hands? You know, uh, but but I think if if you know 
what you're focusing on and, and if you know what your purpose is, then uh, then then you you can't constantly look left and right and try to uh, out uh, compete someone else. I think you have to focus on on the mission and and mm. just you know obviously getting to that point of self sustainability is is a very important milestone in mm. that mission. And now we just want to amplify the positive impact mm. hopefully over the next years. Awesome, and it says a lot about your values actually that you do keep coming back to that and. Uh, yeah, it's not about pride, it's about impact. So, yeah, good for you. Um, Daniel, as I say, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. If people want to learn more about Ada Health or they want to learn more about you or connect with you, what's the best way for them to do so? I mean, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm quite accessible. Uh, so, you know, anyone can, can you know, very happy to connect. I also show up at some of the industry events from time to time. Uh and uh, if you catch me in person, I'm usually happy to 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 have a drink uh, and have a chat. Uh, but feel free to to reach out to me on LinkedIn uh, anytime. Beautiful. Thank you, Daniel. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content. 